1: For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, this week on the Rise Together podcast, we have one of the world's leading experts on peak performance. Stephen Kotler is here, an author, an award-winning journalist, He's the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective and has written 12 books, including the national bestsellers The Future is Faster Than You Think, The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire, a whole host of others. He has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, which is two more than I will likely ever be nominated for. He's had his books and work translated into more than 40 languages, is a regular on every notable publication in the world, And he has a fantastic social media following and feed that I encourage you to check out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us. I'm Dave Hollis and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stephen to the show. Stephen, uh, as much as I have just given a bit of an overview of what you do, can you, in your own words, give people who may not be familiar with your work a little bit about what you do? So, I think what I've really done is I spent my adult life studying those
0: moments in time when the impossible becomes possible. And I've done this in pretty much every domain you can imagine in sports and science and technology and art and culture. And whenever you see the impossible become possible, you essentially see the intersection of two things. You see people figuring out how to harness disruptive technology, disruptive accelerating technology. You see people finding ways to extend human capability. So I've written six books about disruptive technology and how people can harness that. And I've written six books about peak human performance. And at the Flow Research Collective, we try to take this a little farther. I think we marry the two because we study the neurobiology, peak human performance, so what's going on in the brain and the body. We're performing at our best. We use a lot of the same disruptive technologies, artificial intelligence, robotics, sensors, networks, those kinds of things to study this. So that, that work feels like it's, it's the nexus of, of those two worlds uh, in one company.
2: I love that. You know, the the conceit of this podcast is to bring people in who have had a different life experience or are just wired differently so that we might create a bit of an empathy bridge between any listener or myself who does not necessarily have what this guest may have. In this case, we've just brought the smartest person that I've ever been introduced to onto the show so that we can maybe borrow a little bit of the insight that comes from someone who thinks just completely differently. Of all the things that you have been working on, I want to start first with some of what comes out of your last book, because I am someone who really geeks out about how much hope can come from how fast we are solving problems. Uh, I'm someone who's always come back to something like Moore's Law and the, the pace with which exponentially things get faster or better. Um, You wrote this book, The Future is Faster Than You Think, and I'm, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about this concept around peak performance and why inside of a time, a season, when maybe it's harder to attach to hope, there are so many things to feel hope for because of the way that things are progressing the way that they are in the world. So let's start with faster and then move our way towards peak performance a little bit.
0: Um, it's, it's a mouthful of a question. I'm going to try for the fastest answer I could possibly give Take you. Take your time. You're, you're a mean man. That's all I got to say. You're a mean man, and I don't like you much. So Faster, which is the, sort of the third book in an abundance, bold, and Futures Faster, than anything that I've written, Peter Diamandis. Abundance was about what you were just talking about. It was about exponentially accelerating technology and Teams of individuals harnessing this technology to tackle possible global challenges: poverty, energy scarcity, water shortages, healthcare shortages, etc. Bold was sort of the follow-up to that. It was a playbook. People read that, read abundance, and went, "Oh, this is amazing! It's technology, global challenges, and I can make money. Fantastic! Tell me how to do it." So we tried to. And what ha- in faster? What we started to know is what started to happen is abundance and bold were essentially about individual lines of exponentially accelerated technology, right? Technology that's doubling in power on a regular basis, but it was robotics, it was nanotech, it was material science, it was networks, sensors, et cetera individually. And that's those are powerful disruptive forces. But what started to happen in recently is these exponential technologies are converging. They're overlapping. And the short version is, you get a whole is much greater than the sum of those parts effect. When this happens, to put it uh, in perspective and to sort of link it over to peak performance, Ray Kurzweil, head of engineering at Google, probably the smartest guy in the room when it comes to like tracking exponentials and where they're going in the future, has said, "Oh, in the 21st century, so over the next 80 years, we're going to experience 20,000 years worth of technological change." So we're going. Birth of agricultural to the industrial revolution twice in the next 80 years. In the next 10 years, we're essentially going to experience hundred to two hundred years worth of technological change. That's insane. Think back to you know 1921, fast forward to now and just shove that in before 2030. And that was, by the way, pre-COVID which very well may have, right? Peter and I literally were launching Future's Faster And then you think on the day we were in New York on talk shows and it, the story was us and this weird disease coming out of China that nobody had heard of. And Peter looked at me like I, like on Fox News or something, right before they about to segue to us, he's like, dude, I think the future is faster than we thought. And he right, wasn't wrong. And so here's the point. When it comes to 100 years of change in the next 10 years for legacy organizations, legacy companies, this is a big problem. Yeah. This is a massive, massive problem. There's, I mean, corporate longevity has already shrunk considerably. We know that, according to uh, Richard Foster's work at Yale, 40% of the Fortune 500 companies are going to be gone in the next 10 years, replaced by ones we haven't even heard of, right? That may increase because of these conversion forces. But the point is, For people who can stay ahead of this curve, who can keep pace with the speed and scale of change, the opportunities are incredible. Every time a technology goes exponential, there's an internet-sized opportunity tucked inside. We've got 14 technologies going exponential and converging. And with converging technologies, you start to get converging markets. Right. Food and healthcare are becoming the same market. Healthcare and entertainment are becoming similar market. Right. Weird things. Again, crazy opportunity if you spot the trends. The problem we have um in general as human beings is our brains evolved millions of years ago in an environment that was local and linear. Local meaning most of what we dealt with was a day's walk away. Linear rate of progression is really slow, right? There's very little difference between your great-great-great-great-grandmother's life and her great-great-great-great-granddaughter. It's roughly the same life. Today, world is global and exponential. Global meaning it happens on the other side of the world. We hear about it a second later. Our computers get it milliseconds later. Exponential, as we've been talking about, the rate of change is doubling and speeding up. And you know, forget about. Grandma to grandchild. It's, you know, week to week this year, it's been colossal. So, the cool thing is the work that I do on flow, we're going to have to pause to define flow for this next part to make sense. Flow is technically defined as, scientifically defined as, an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. That's not a very useful definition. So colloquially, it's any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. gets so focused on the task at hand, everything else just seems to disappear. Action awareness will start to merge. Your sense of self will get really quiet. It'll diminish. Time will dilate, which is a fancy way of saying it passes strangely, speeds up. So five hours go by in like five seconds. Or Occasionally, it'll slow down. You get a freeze frame effect, maybe been a car crash. And throughout, all aspects of performance, both mental and physical, go through the roof. So the big deal for this conversation is for reasons that we can get into the neurochemicals, other things as well, but predominantly the neurochemicals that create this data flow in our brain essentially surround the brain's information processing machinery. So we take in information more quickly. We process it more quickly, find connections between it more quickly than normal. We react to it more quickly than normal, et cetera, et cetera. All of our information processing machinery gets sped up and Humans have built-in time horizons. We have a very difficult time seeing into the future. We evolved to think essentially a season ahead. Oh, shit, winter's coming, let me find a cave, right? Like that kind of thing. We did not evolve to think three, five years ahead, 10 years ahead. This is not how we're wired. And uh, I think it's Kelly McDonigle who's done this, uh, done a really interesting study that found that most people cannot actually even think past 10 years in the future. Like we have a wall there, um, which, which is interesting in flow for a variety of different reasons, you can actually see farther into the future. You can project farther into the future. You can process information at speed and at scale. And it seems to be the only time. So in a world that is hyper sped up where there's tremendous opportunities for anybody who can keep pace, the cool news is those are universal. Shows up in any human being anywhere provided certain initial conditions are met. We understand what those initial conditions are. We know how to make flow much more reliable much more repeatable, much more a part of our everyday lives. And as a result, we're starting to have the cognitive abilities to keep pace with this blitzkrieg world.
2: I love the answer. No, I love the answer. And I wanna, we're going to come back into Flow, and I want to talk about the, the book that's just now coming out in, a, in, in a, just a minute. But I, I, what I get hung up on, and what I think listeners may in fact get hung up on, one of, the, one of my favorite quotes out of Faster is when the brain encounters... Unfamiliar stimuli under certain conditions, basic instincts take over. And and it's this idea that we are wired from thousands and thousands of years ago to almost protect ourselves, to hunt for a solution that has previously worked, but in a world that is changing as fast as it is, those old solutions may not in fact be the remedy that's necessary to succeed in a future where the conditions are completely different.
0: Yeah. So you're, you're, you're get that there's, this is actually in both books though much more detailed in the new one than are possible because it's a how to. And so here's how you, right. But so here's, here's what it is sort of big picture. When we have anxiety in our system of any kind, neurobiologically, that's that's mostly norepinephrine and cortisol, you get a lot of activity in the amygdala, a couple of other parts of the brain like that. And what happens is the more anxious we feel, the brain goes, oh, dude, you're anxious. Let me offer you simple solutions, tried and true solutions. So we become much more linear and logical. Here's the extreme example that we're all familiar with. When danger is critical, your brain goes, oh, shit, life-threatening situation, fight or flight and freeze, right? You have three options. We're going to remove all choices to three options. That's the extreme version, but it works the same way. Like a little bit of anxiety will also limit creativity. All this work is done in a part of the brain known as the anterior cingulate cortex. And the flip side is also true, by the way. You want to promote lateral thinking, outside the box thinking, far-flying solutions, be in a good mood. Because when we're in a good mood, the brain goes, oh, everything's cool in your world. Let's look at it, explore the world. Maybe there's ways out there where we can find new resources rather than fighting over these dwindling resources. And those circuits get fired up. To even put it more extreme, anxiety and curiosity in the brain are the same signal. They're the exact same signal. They're opposite sides of the same coin. In fact, a lot of mammals can't feel both at the same time. It's a switch that flips back and forth. When they do animal welfare and they want to make animals less anxious, they often try to make them more curious. That's one of the things that right, we, we, you do. Oh, well, yeah. We, we,
2: I've had people. plenty of conversations. Hey, put people in two separate rooms. Ask them to use words to describe anxiety and excitement. They come up with the exact same words. They don't realize that they're defining something that's the opposite side of a coin.
0: Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky Do you know the crazy Harvard study, the reframing study? No. Oh, this is, the, this is the craziest thing you've ever heard of this. So they asked a question at Harvard. I can't remember the name of the scientist who did it, but they said, okay, we want to know, we want to k- basically activate parasympathetic response, the rest and relaxed response. And they want to know what's going to work better, cognitive reframing or breath work. So they tested them and they found that you can basically calm anybody down in about seven minutes worth of serious respiration. Then on the reframing side, is it okay? Stand up, feel the anxiety you're feeling in your gut and say, I am excited, I am excited, I am excited, three times out loud. Reframing works better to calm down the uh, because that's all the brain is doing is right is and there's a lot of really reframing is a very powerful cognitive performance tool for this very reason because you're it can literally switch how we interpret neurochemicals
2: which is which is a potent tool. What's interesting too, like against the backdrop of all of this, is there is then a thesis that would suggest that risk or something new or having to push into discomfort ends up actually stretching the muscles that you have historically depended on in a way that maybe- Yeah, that would be called The Art of Impossible. That would be the next book. Right? That's where (laughs) we're going
0: right now. That's where we're going. If you
2: want. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, of course, for sure. You know, but talk a little bit like so, there is an aversion to risk. There is an aversion to discomfort. There's an aversion to what people believe is control. And then they are in 2020, 21, recognizing the absence of it. But if we can reframe the possibility that the unknown, the uncertainty, the risk is actually where you can unlock, might it in the reframing give permission to walk into these spaces because of the things that it will inevitably create for us? Yes. And it, it's it's foundational, right? And there's really,
0: I mean, one of the first things, one of the easiest ways to do this is you have to understand that when it comes to, we don't live in reality. We live in a reality that is predominantly shaped by two things, our fears and our goals. We are goal-directed machines and we are threat-avoiding machines. And it's that's why anxiety and curiosity are the same signal, right? Anxiety and excitement, that's why they're the same signal. And if you, If if you don't have the proper goals, if you're not moving in those directions, right, the anxiety is going to win. You're going to be risk averse. Give somebody a goal. And, oh, my God, we used to, back when I was a journalist, we used to talk about this as away games versus home games. And as a journalist, you'd go out on an away game, you'd get an assignment. The thing, the most dangerous words in my entire life ever were on assignment. The things I did on assignment, I would never, in my normal daily life, absolutely would never ever consider doing them. But you put me on assignment, it's like Clark Kent into the phone booth, and out comes a moron who will get the story under all costs. Yep. You know, I used to laugh about this with, you know, a lot of photographers who I travel with who were even crazier. Than you know, I were once they were like on assignment, you know, scary, <laughs> scary things, what they would do to get the shot. But it, it and it's just a switch, it's a frame. And because we're gold-racking systems, you can quell the fear, it's how it's built to work.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting too, because I've seen you talk on the idea of cultivating grit, and it comes when you actually embrace the benefit that can come inside of this space where your new muscles are being formed. Because I think there's there's, a, there's some part of our humanity that thinks, oh, if we can just get through this thing, then we're not going to have to deal with that next thing. But there is always going to be a next thing. And so the faster that we're able to develop that grit, the faster we're able to wire the new muscles, the better prepared we're going to be for the inevitability of whatever ends up coming next. Because we cannot get to a place where we can stop problems, we can only hope to create additional preparedness for how to handle them when they show up. This is another question I'm gonna
0: sort of answer with a big long answer, cause you just sort of summarized, I think like the first quarter of my of, of the new book <laughs> and to sort of answer your question and like flesh this out, i have to talk a little bit about what The Art of Impossible is about. And so where I wanna start is when we talk about peak even performance for starters, like keeping pace with the exponential technology, all that stuff that we, we would want, seeing these opportunities, developing grid, all this stuff. What you're actually describing is what I call the habit of ferocity, which is the ability to automatically lean into any challenge before you even know you're leaning in. And I'll and I'll want to let's talk about the benefit of where this comes from before we talk about what builds it, because the benefit is really amazing. And it's one of the things. So for starters, peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. That's all we're talking about. That's all we're we're doing here. And it turns out that biology, our neurobiology, it's a limited toolkit, right? There's a there's a certain and there's a set of tools and there's an order in a sequence that essentially we have the, these tools evolved to come online in and thus if we cultivate them in that way so you i you were talking about grit and grit is an amazing skill we don't train it in people until after they've started to develop certain motivation internal motivation skills that start producing more flow because if you're training grit without getting periodic flow to redeem the grit you've just created the recipe for burnout Right, like that's burnout, and you're heading for a disaster, and it's super demotivating. So, you're totally right, but it takes a little while. But if you get it all right, so and by the way, when I say motivation, this is a catch all term. When psychologists say motivation, what they really mean is external motivation, like money, sex, fame, internal motivation, or intrinsic drivers like curiosity, passion, purpose, right? Goals and grit. So, that's sort of like the motivation suite that's when you talk about motivation, but let's say you get all that dialed in and right, you get the habit of ferocity. And what's the big deal here? Why do you care about leaning into any challenge automatically? It's really funny and it gives it another secret about peak performance. This is one of the reasons I think so many people have trouble in our like super impatient modern world with peak performance is that it works like compound interest. A tiny little bit further today, tiny little bit further, right? and it But it adds up and, and the habit of ferocity is a great example. So What do you get with the habit of ferocity? Well, if you think about most people, right, issue arises and they freak out, right? They're going to have a two to three minute, oh my God, God damn it, how come this always happens to me? Mom, yeah, I, right, or whatever it is. And then they're like, oh, but this is a work thing. I got to do it anyway, so I'm in, right? And they just go to work and it, it eventually gets done. We took a survey and I don't think this is Deadly accurate, but we just wanted to know. I we asked a hundred business people how many challenging problems they serve they solve in a day. And the average was five. So I figured the habit of Frosty, you get about five minutes back a problem, right? Like it's not a big savings. It's five minutes a problem. It's like, you know, normal guy is going to dither for five minutes. Oh fuck, I don't want to do this. Let me get on Twitter and see if anybody likes me or let me go check Facebook and oh, okay, this problem, right? Then they're in, or whatever it is, guys. Men and women with a habit of frosty, they're in immediately. You save 25 minutes a day. You save three and a half hours a week. You save three and a half weeks a year. Like it's getting a month back. And it's one of the things that's so funny because people talk about top performers. And one of the things they say is they're so far ahead. How'd they get so far ahead? So fast? I don't get it. They got there five minutes at a time from leaning into problems automatically rather than dithering. The Navy SEALs talk about this in a different way that I think, uh, or and my friend, Dr. Andrew Uberman, who's a neuroscientist at Stanford, we do a lot of work with the Float Research Collective. He says the same thing. I don't actually know who said it first, so I'm going to give them both credit. But one of the things that peak performers always know that most other people don't know is that it's always crawl, walk, run. No matter what, it's always crawl, walk, run. So most people, they come to a new skill or a new thing they got to learn or whatever. And most people are like, Dude, man, I, I'm not the guy. I don't crawl, man. That's not for me. I don't even walk, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out a shortcut. I'm going to get a hack. I'm going to start at a jog. And they blow a month or two months or three months trying to find a shortcut that doesn't exist because peak performers know there are no shortcuts. Right? The shortcut is don't think about it. You're going to suck. That's what starting at the beginning means. That's what crawl, walk run means. And the other thing is peak performers know that with learning, it's always a suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, look, I'm better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that's the, it's on the inside. I don't care how good you are. It's the experience is always bad. It's awful. We don't like it. It's frustrating. We don't know how to do something and it's invisible because it's the unconscious right. Right. So I think on those, those two things, this habit of ferocity and this crawl walk run, which are kind of flip sides of the same idea. You end up by just not doing these things. And the other thing that's really important to remember is that when you that problem comes in and you react to it like it's a threat, that is expensive. It's calorically expensive. It's energetically expensive. And if you're gonna do that 25 minutes a day, five problems a day, and you're gonna have 25 minutes of emotional upset, you're burning hours of fuel that you could use for productivity for focus for you know for anything else you want to do it can also be
2: self-fulfilling if you start through the frame of it being a problem you'll find the evidence that reinforces your hypothesis if you come into it believing oh this is a thing we're going to take care of and fix you'll also find the evidence of that as well one of the things that's interesting around the idea of high performers is sometimes i have historically listened to someone like you talk about them i'm sure listeners right now are listening and they're like who are these people? I, you know, like I wish I knew yeah. them. I wish I could be one. And what's beautiful in the conversation around the habit of ferocity is that peak performance is the net result of these carefully curated mental and physical habits that any of us actually can have access to. The idea of being a peak performer isn't exclusively reserved for people who are wired a certain way.
0: I came into this whole question of what what is take to the impossible through the door of action sports. I became a journalist in the early 1990s. I covered, you know, journalism is, is this get great game where anything you're deeply passionate and curious about, you can essentially get paid to learn more about, right? And I was deeply passionate and curious and addicted to neuroscience and psychology. I want to know how did humans work and action sports, surfing, skiing, rock climbing and the like. And The 90s are often talked about the great era of impossible in action sports because more impossible, never been done, never going to be done feats were done than ever before. It was this incredible explosion in human performance. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. And the thing I always point out to people is all the people I knew, the people who had like, you know, surfing, we went from surfing 25 foot waves to surfing 100 foot waves by the end of the decade. The start of the decade, we could jump off 60 foot cliffs on skis and snowboards. and At the end of the decade, it was 325 foot cliffs. I mean, it was crazy. And nobody knew what was possible. And everybody was getting a lot of attention. But the view was really different on the inside than the outside, right? It's, it's one thing to see Laird Hamilton on a screen surfing a 50-foot wave, you know, or Shane McConkey, or whatever. I always said that, like, it's one. I, I would go drinking with guys on a Friday night, we'd get drunk, we'd be 22-year-old dudes on a Friday night getting drunk, and then Saturday morning, we'd go into the mountains And somebody would do something that for all of recorded history had never been done and nobody ever thought was going to be done. And this was happening over and over and over again. And if you look at those athletes up close, this is the point I want to make. Most of the people I knew came from broken homes, had crappy childhoods, had very little education, had almost no money. Right there was a there was a ton of risk taking. There was a lot of drugs and drinking. This is a normal like collection of things that lead to like you know death, jail. They don't lead to reinventing what is possible for the human species over and over and over again. And yet, it turns out I you know as a guy who's, I've probably been in the room more times when the impossible became possible than pretty much anybody else alive because I you know sort of done it for a career. And it was my beat as a journalist and whatever. And I have met people who've done extraordinary things but none of them none of them started out extraordinary they all yeah. became extraordinary through exactly what you said i mean the art of impossible there's a bunch of onboarding processes you have to sort of do to get into the peak performance game but in the end after you know everything i look at looked at and what all everything the neurobiology and the science tells us it's about six things you have to do every day and seven things you got to do every week and most of the things you have to do were like five minute long things. They're short, easy, quick. They're not, you know, a couple of the other things that are longer are not like ways of approaching work you're going to have to do anyways, or, you know, that sort of stuff. So it it is so within everybody's reach. It's astounding. And the final thing I want to say about that, because people get very intimidated by the, the art of impossible, he's talking about peak performers who do what has never been done. And yep. okay, uh, you know, I hear you. And most people who are this to this. They're like, dude, I just want to get through Monday, man. Help me through Monday, right? Like, what's up with this? I wrote a book about lessons learned from people who have accomplished what I would call capital I impossible, that which has never been done. But it's meant to be used by anybody who's interested in accomplishing what I would call small I impossible. That which you think is impossible for you. Yeah. And small eye impossible. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. I wanted to be a writer from the time I was five years old. Cleveland, Ohio in the 70s, when I was growing up, was a blue-collar steel mill. Town. I didn't know any writers. I didn't know how to become a writer. It was like I woke up one morning and said, Mom, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be an elf for all I knew how to do it. And that's a small eye impossible, right? There's like there's. I'm at point A. I want to go to point B. I have no idea how the hell to get there. And statistically, really low odds of success. What is another small lie impossible? Rising out of poverty, getting paid for what we love, overcoming trauma, becoming world-class at anything you do. I'll tell you the first small lie impossible that I think almost everybody goes after, and we all just forget the level of impossible it was, we're 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever in there, and we suddenly discover there are attractive other people in the world and we want a kiss or a date or to hold somebody's hand or whatever that is. And it is, I mean, are you kidding? When I was like 10 years old, I would have given you my hand, right? Like maybe <laughs> not my right, but you could have had my left for you know that secret kind of thing. And we all do that. And this is where I wanted to go because it's something you said earlier and it's so cr- crucial, which is, I don't know anybody who sits out to accomplish capital I impossible. I just know people who cat, sit out to accomplish small I impossible. And the way you get to capital I impossible is small I impossible after small I impossible after small I impossible, stretching your skills to the utmost again and again and again. And sooner or later, capital I impossible shows up. And often for the people involved, it doesn't feel like capital I impossible. It feels like whatever is next. Right? Yeah. Great story about yeah. that. So I first met Laird Hamilton when he was 30 years old. Uh, 31. I was 27 at the time. And he was then just starting to toe into Jaws and nobody had ever seen anything like it. It was the most, you know, 50 foot waves. Are you like are you kidding? Like, what? What is happening? Huh? And he he said something really interesting. He says, Stephen, you know, people see, man, 30 years old, they see me on a 50 foot wave and they're like, dude, that, no way. that's impossible. I could never do that. And he's like, But they didn't see me at three years old on a three-foot wave, and four years old at a four-foot wave, and five years old at a five-foot wave. And they didn't see me last week on a a 49-and-a-half-foot wave. So instead, they see 50 and think, oh, my God, that's impossible. And I'm the guy riding it. And I'm thinking, well, Laird, you're really not pushing that hard this week because, you know, six inches, you know, I know you can't control the waves, but come on, buddy, right? Yeah. That's what I mean. The view is really different on the inside from, from the outside.
2: One of the things that's interesting in just the conversation about the pursuit of the little I impossible ends up coming back to the motivation pieces that you spoke of. I have historically just been way more extrinsically motivated than intrinsically motivated, and it's taken a lot of work to tap into the unlocking of passion, the the pursuit of purpose, fulfillment, all of the things that now, of course, are driving every decision that I'm making in my life. But You've talked about five intrinsic motivators and how we make them work for us. I think there's some connection to becoming someone who believes you are worthy of or can chase after the little I impossible, and how you use the motivation to get a step closer to it every day. Do you? Is there a connection? I think
0: well, of course. And I think so. First of all, I think everything you just said makes total and complete perfect sense because what the science shows is if you want to tap into motivation, you actually got to start with extrinsic. You have to take care of your basic needs, have a little leftover for fun. Now, that, now, mind you, if you're really wired for extrinsic motivation, maybe your basic needs are a lot bigger than somebody else's, right? That, that, sure. that could be the case, et cetera. But the research is really clear on this. Like, If you're anxious about how am I going to pay my bills, how am I going to pay my rent, how am I going to support feed my family, any of those questions, you're producing too much of anxiety. So you've got to start with extrinsic motivation anyways. Um. as a general rule. And I also think you nailed some intrinsic motivation stuff on the head. I think, one, people mystify all this stuff, right? Curiosity is your basic intrinsic motivator. It's designed to be built into passion. That process takes a while. Biologically, it's designed to take a while. You don't really... Want to be two, three years into a passion to discover, oh, it's only a phase, right? That's really yeah. demotivating. Yeah. That's bad. That's a, that, right. So, you, you really do want to take your time for a lot of reasons. That gets built into purpose. Once you have purpose, you need autonomy, which is the freedom to pursue your purpose. And then you need mastery, which is the skills to pursue it well. And they're meant to be developed in that order.
2: Does it? that is hold on say, just say that again real quick because that just as a linear process well, that is that, that's the
0: the, th- that's how the biology
2: is built so and i can give you something
0: that we can give to people so if you go to www.thepassionrecipe.com we took everything i'm talking about that first chunk of the book and said look everybody finds it useful let's make it into an interactive workbook and a, and a little bit of a thing so that's out there and it's free for anybody Before we talk about the stack one more time, well, let me talk about the stack and let me make another point about passion also, because you also said something there that I thought was really bright about that and I want to hit on it, which is the stack is this curiosity, if you can, curiosity is our basic motivator. And what's the big deal about motivation? Gives us focus for free. When we're curious about something, we pay attention to it automatically. We don't have to burn calories. That's the big deal, right? When we're passionate, we pay even more attention, right? Romantic love is a passion. Think about how much, you know, the first time you fell in love, could you stop thinking about the boy, girl, man, right? Like you were just like, I can't get you out of my head. Yes, that's yep. that's what passion is. It's focus for free. Curiosity, if we could find the intersection of multiple curiosities and play there for a while and get some wins and learn and grow there, that's passion. And Passion, this is the mistake so many people make and they make it today because A, they're impatient. What is my passion? What is my purpose? And B, they forget something really foundational, which is like, if I ask you, give me an example of athletic passion. You're going to give me LeBron James coming in for a thunder dunk over some, you know, poor, hapless defenders, you know, head in the finals with a scowl on his face. and That's athletic passion. And, well, it is, but it's late stage athletic passion. It's already been developed. We forget that on the front end, it looks and feels like nothing more than a little kid in the driveway shooting the ball through a hoop, right? And being frustrated and scared and hopeful and all those. It doesn't feel or look like we think it does because what you're looking at is something that was earned and cultivated over 20, 30 years. Then you get that, Right. But you have to, you just got to be where you are at at the time and, and understand that's just fine. But curiosity into passion, passion, if you attach it to something outside yourself, right? Take the thing that you're passionate about and use it as a way to serve others. And this sounds all altruistic, and it is, but really, you get more feel good reward neurochemistry when you involve others in the equation. You get all the pro social oxytocin, endorphins, serotonin, that's, that's, these are fun drugs right? that the brain gives us for free when other people are involved. And so passion into purpose, once you have purpose, the system says, well, okay, cool, now you need autonomy, the freedom to pursue your purpose. And it's crazy because the research is really clear on this, you don't need that much freedom, or right? you don't need that much autonomy. You need autonomy because autonomy and attention are coupled systems in the brain, so we pay more attention when we're driving the bus. We just
2: do. And autonomy could be that you're just now liberating yourself from the social construct that you have believed that kept you from believing you could, right? And so there's, there's something in and just, there's also, it doesn't need to- uh,
0: Yeah, I always used to tell people, like I used to, as a journalist, when I was coming up, you know, I was poor as shit. I had to take every story that came my way, right? If you want me to write about like bowling in Tanzania, I'm there, man, right? Like whatever, just pay me. And so uh, sooner or later, you end up writing about stories that you're just not that into. But I would find something in the story that I was into, something in the story that would teach me something I wanted to learn, right? I would reframe the assignment to find an opportunity for learning and growth. And suddenly, I was really into the story, right? And it it worked, and bonus, when you're curious, when there's norepinephrine and dopamine in your system, you learn faster, you learn better, Right. So all this boosts learning as well. Um, anyways, you've got autonomy. What do you need next? Mastery, which is the skills right, to pursue your purpose well. That's, and that's the stack. And, what do you, and okay. once you get that, then you need goals because you've got all this stuff. And, well, where am I going? Okay. And it turns out we need three levels of goals, like mission-level goals, high-hard goals that feed into the mission-level goals, and then clear daily to-do goals that feed into our higher goals, then the whole system is pointed in the same direction. Two things happen at this point. By the way, one, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about are flow triggers. We can talk about why, but all autonomy, mastery, passion, purpose, curiosity, all these things drive focus. Anything that drives focus into the present moment will help create flow the system will automatically at this point start producing way more flow, which is really cool because what you have to train next is grit. This is where grit comes in. And if you do it in the right order, and by the way, flow itself amplifies grit. Like this is really well known. So you'll get, not only do you start training, but you're going to get farther, faster, more of it. It's going to be a whole lot easier. But if you do it at this point, it's not miserable. you start trying to train grit before you have the motivation lined up, you're just like, why am I banging my head into a wall
2: 1,600 times a day, right? Yeah. What's crazy is the, the convergence that's happening in the universe outside of us is now meeting the opportunity for convergence inside of us. Because there is, as you have these things converging, the thing that snaps flow that allows you to actually keep pace with the way the convergence is accelerating the world around us. Oh, I love it. I love it. All right, let's talk talk about The Art of Impossible. From what I can say, it's, hey, decoding these secrets of elite performers, you call it peak performance primer. What would you hope for someone who picks this book up to get from it? Why did you write it? Just give us everything and anything about Impossible. So, Because the thing is, there's almost nothing anybody
0: wants that isn't tied to the biology of performance. Meaning, you want meaning, well-being, Happiness, peace, and calm. The people with the most flow in their lives are the people who score off the charts for overall well-being, life satisfaction, happiness. Right? The people who are the world's best performers also have the most flow. So these things are. There's really nothing you you don't want that isn't tied in here. Now, this I'm not saying my book is for everybody, but I am saying that 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 is because there's just our biology, getting our biology yeah. for us rather than against us, and you know. I wrote this book for a number of different reasons. One, I wrote this book because after 30 years of studying this stuff on the front lines, the lesson over and over and over and over and over again is we are all capable of so much more than we know. A. B. Human potential, human capability, our capability is invisible, especially to ourselves. And. That, you know, and how do you figure out what you're capable of? By doing exactly what you talked about at the start of this, right? You you stretch your skills to the utmost again and again and again. And as that compound interest starts to build up, you start going, oh, my God, right? And your life starts to, you start to exceed your limitations. Then your life starts to exceed your expectations for your life. And then you're really into the realm of, oh, my God, what actually is possible for me? Then it gets super, super, super interesting. And this is available to anyone, anywhere. And it's not the craziest thing about it. This is not about the book, but I just think it's worth pointing out loud. This isn't always true. There are exceptions and I can talk about them. But as a general rule, if you've made it to adulthood, you've already felt as bad as you're going to feel in this world. I'm not saying you won't feel it again but it's not actually, unless you experience the death of a child or chronic unemployment, the research is really clear because of emotional set points, you've already lived through it. You know, you may get it again for like two or more days in a row, but you already have figured out how to survive it. So really the question you gotta ask yourself is like, how big do you wanna go? Cause you've already experienced the worst that you're gonna get one way or another. So right, if that's already happened, how big do you want to go right like if it, it, yeah. it, you already the worst has already happened trust me emotionally right that's that's what the science tells us which is really a wild thought for most people but it's true
2: I, I it's interesting because I'm in a season where I am myself trying to understand how to more fully unlock the gifts that live inside of me I tend to have a conversation a little bit through the lens of hey, I've I've been put on this planet by a creator with an intention for me to exploit fully. Like self-actualization is my honoring the thing that I have been afforded in gifts. And so this book and the conversation around peak performance and getting into flow and becoming isn't so much about the pursuit of abundance, the, the, the necessary like building of an empire or frankly, almost anything that ends up being material more than it is the way I wanna feel about myself when I'm by myself for knowing that I have honored the creator's intention by fully tapping into and accessing the things that exist inside of me that I might not myself have even believed existed. Here's what I wanna, this is one of the other big things
0: that I learned writing the book. It was the most shocking thing I learned writing the book, like where I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is true because there's a flip side to everything you just said, it's really important to point out. Art of Impossible is a book about how do you go big, right? How do we tap into our full potential? How do we utilize our full gifts? That's what the book is about. But what the science shows consistently, and I'll go into a lot of detail, is not only are we designed to go big, are we designed to go after our fullest potential? Not going big is bad for us. Abraham Maslow put it this way: This famous psychologist. He said, "Whatever a human a person can be, they must be." To put it, to really break it down. So, and because we, we just talked about the motivation stack, and it, so it's a good place to talk about this. When I say not going big is bad for us, or not going, trying to rise to our full potential, reach our full capability, use our all of our gifts. There are eight. Major known causes of depression and anxiety. Now, right now, from a mental health perspective, as I'm sure you know, depression and anxiety are at epidemic proportions like nothing we've ever seen. One out of 10 yeah. adults is going to be depressed or anxious and need medication over the next year. It's the largest drain on kind of public health dollars. And to boot, somebody kills themselves once every 12 seconds, which is insane. You're literally suicide has surpassed automobiles is the number one cause of death in the world, which is nuts. You look at the causes of depression and anxiety, and there are eight of them, and the ones that get the most attention are genetics or uh, trauma, right? My genes are bad. I can't produce enough serotonin so I'm depressed, or this really horrible thing happened to me and I can't get past it, and thus I'm depressed and anxious. True, okay, but if you look at the data, what the data shows is that never does genetics alone lead to depression. It's only at maximum 50% of the equation. There's always life experiences and how you're living, mindset, a whole bunch of other things factored in with the genetics. And trauma, the vast majority of the time, doesn't lead to post-traumatic stress disorder. It leads to post-traumatic growth. That's what the, right, post-traumatic growth means, like what Hemingway meant when he said the world breaks everyone,
2: and afterwards, many are stronger at the broken places. I am experiencing it in real time, nine months into a divorce. I am the best version of and grown most out of the experience of this last window of time. I am a personal witness to this. Continue. So if genetics and trauma
0: aren't the real causes of anxiety and depression, what are the other ones? And why are we talking about them? Well, one of the biggest is lack of meaningful work, major cause of anxiety and depression. Do you know what lack of meaningful work actually means? It's work that you're not curious about, that you're not passionate about, and it's not aligned with your values and your purpose and who you are, that you don't have the autonomy, the freedom to pursue in any way that's interesting to you, that you don't doesn't afford you the opportunity for mastery, and bonus, it doesn't produce any flow. That's what we mean by lack of meaningful work, right? Yeah. Lack of meaningful values, another major cause of anxiety and depression. What does it mean? Lack of purpose, lack of passion, lack of flow. Like literally... Not going big is bad for us. We're built to go big. We're built to rise to our fullest capability. And when we don't, the price we pay is anxiety and depression. Of course it is. Where do we start this conversation? Goals versus fears. Goals versus fears. Yeah. Right? Like we're really, we like to think we're really sexy, complicated machines, and we're really simple toys
2: on a lot of level. Yeah. So good. All right. This has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate it so much. I end every of these episodes by asking our guests a single question, hard question. And that is, if you hold could... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Let
0: me see if I can answer it well,
2: before you ask. Here we go. Okay. So it's <laughs>
0: either 42, because that's the classic answer, or
2: a blue fish. This is not the correct answer. Although it may be. Okay. Uh, if you could... <laughs> Uh, leave our audience today with a single piece of actionable advice to afford themselves growth, some peace, uh, a a step towards fulfillment, what would the single actionable takeaway be? So I don't generally answer
0: this question because I don't think almost everybody is different. I don't think there's one blanket across the board answer that's going to work. That said, here's what I here's here's what I've come to because I think this is so important. I think it's especially important in 2021. So, in flow research and flow science, there's something known as a primary flow activity. As a general rule, this is that thing you've done all your life that just drops you into the zone. Like 90% of the time, you show up, you do this thing. For me, it's skiing, right? I 90% of the time I go to the mountains, I'm in flow. For some people, it's singing opera, dancing to hip hop, walking their dog under the stars, you know, studying frogs, take your pick. As we become adults, as we become responsible, as we get families and spouses and jobs and very external focus towards our goals. And I want to accomplish this in the world. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go skiing because I'm super productive and I got right. What do we do? We set aside all that stuff. We set aside our primary flow activity and from a performance standpoint, it is the most disastrous thing you could do. What the research shows is if you can spend about an afternoon a week, about four hours, and you can break it up however you want, three to four hours in a primary flow activity, the performance bonuses are astounding. So let's talk about them. And there's a couple of if-then caveats around this. One, flow is a focusing skill. It's like mindfulness and meditation are focusing skills, right? And like any other skill. Practice makes perfect. And the more flow you get, the more flow you get. So you want more flow at work. You want more flow in your home life, at your personal relationships or whatever. Primary flow activity is training your brain how to focus, right? I want to write more in flow. I ski more. It's, there's a, okay, so that's A. Two, we started this whole conversation saying anxiety massively blocks performance, creativity, innovation, huge issue. As we move into flow, there is a global release of nitrous oxide. as a gas that's signaling molecules in every cell of your body. It flushes all the stress hormones out of your system. Flow resets your nervous system to zero, right? It calms you down automatically, right? No work required, automatic, super calm. Bonus replaces those stress hormones with positive, feel-good, performance-enhancing neurochemistry. Some of those chemicals, the heightened motivation, the heightened joy, you feel it's gonna outflow is about a ninety minute experience. Usually, there's no one time that works, but this is gonna outlast a flow state by a day, maybe two. Teresa Amabile at Harvard figured out so when flow creativity and all creative problem solving aspects are massively heightened four hundred to seven hundred percent. Depending on whose studies you're looking at, Teresa figured out that that heightened creativity will outlast the flow state by a day, maybe two. So double down in so your good. primary flow activity. What do you get? Well, you're calmer you're more productive, you're more creative, your nervous system has sort of just been reset. By the way, the neurochemicals that show in flow also happen to boost the immune system as well. So you're actually a little bit healthier, more resilient, able to kind of fight off stuff better. And this is seriously the thing you should do the most. But here's the if-then caveats, two things that are really important. If you are feeling guilty while doing this, or you're going to feel guilty Mm. after doing this, you're going to destroy all the good you've just done, right? It's worthless if you're going to feel bad about it, which is why have your conversations ahead of time, right? Wife, husband, boss, friends, kids, whatever. Flow is a massive heightening in productivity and performance. So you go farther, faster. What ends up happening is you start getting time back in your life. So all the people who don't want you to do this because they want your time, you're actually getting more time to give to them, but it just feels like you're stealing more time. And you have to really talk about this out loud. Like I've been married to the same woman for 15 years. I'm the world's leading expert on this. I ski all the time, and you know, every now and again, she's like, "Well, have you having fun skiing all the time? You know what I mean? Like, he knows
2: why." Yeah but also she's she getting, the better, getting the better version of, of you, you. She knows why, but right? if this is
0: human nature too. Like it's going to happen. So like have your conversations in advance. Don't feel guilty about it because you're literally just working against it. So this is the one thing that we should really do. And especially here in 2021, we just came through a very, very hard chaotic year. We're all running hot right now. And, Calming down your nervous system alone by rekindling this stuff is just gonna be a bonus. It's gonna make 2021 so much easier.
2: I love it. I'm gonna make an appointment immediately to get out and do some things that will absolutely get me into that state. All right, Uh, if people who are listening are not uh, totally yet familiar with your work or following you on the internet in some way, where can they learn more about what you do and how to learn from you regularly? As I said, if you
0: www.passionrecipe.com, we'll get you all that stuff if you're interested. StephenCotler.com is me. The Flow Research Collective is my organization. If you're interested in flow trainings or anything like that, and TheArtOfImpossible.com is all things for the book. though so, it's you know floating around on my website and FRC's website and other things like that, but.
2: Awesome. We're going we're gonna to throw those links into the show notes of this episode. David, let me give you one yes, more sir. thing because
0: everybody gets all hot. Rev. Right? Oh, I want more flow. I want more flow. I want more flow. www.flowblocker.com. So there's six major blockers that people run into in like standing between them more flow. We just built a diagnostic. So that's free for people out there. Um, it's really, it's pretty self-explanatory. It'll diagnose you. And it'll, it, These are the steps you should take to fix this problem. So
2: flowblocker.com is also available. So good, I am so fired up. I love this conversation, I love the way you think. And if anything, I hope that anyone who is listening feels the permission to believe themselves capable of high performance and understands a little bit of what it might take to unlock what exists readily available inside of you. Ladies and gentlemen, please take a picture of this episode on the device that you are listening to it on, tag myself and Steven, share it with every single human you've ever known in your entire life. And between now and next week, get out and get into flow. We will see you next episode. Thank you, Thank you, you Steven. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfoush and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates, Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.